Great. Well, uh, I hope you're all ready for some accountancy because it's going to be fun. Um, so brand finance is primarily known for talking about brands, not really talking about customer relationships, but it is something that we do as well. We value all intangible assets. And so I thought it would be good to start by prefacing the conversation by talking about the values of brands. So we release a, a ranking of the most valuable brands each year, and these are the top 10, uh, all incredibly valuable. You've got we're saying that the value of the Apple trademark as an asset within the business is 260 billion. I mean, that's massive. That's a huge amount of value. And we're just talking about how the trademark is encouraging people to come in in the first place. Now, I'm not an expert in telling you how to manage customer relationships, um, but I can value them. One of the things that we do talk about is brand strategy because it's all about not necessarily ignoring your customer, but paying very close attention uh, to what they're trying to say, but then helping them solve the solution um, through what you as your organization are trying to do. So it's not saying ignore your customer, it's saying pay close attention to them uh, to maximize the relationship that you can get once your brand has got them in the front door. So to get straight down to the accountancy, um, when, I am looking at an asset. I'm thinking about the entire business. And some of you may be familiar with tangible assets. They're things like plant and property and all that sort of stuff, things you can touch, see generally. But then there are all the different intangible assets. And the reason that I'm telling you this is going to become apparent later on, because when Phil came and said, oh, yeah, we need to value our customer relationships. Here's the value of them. And he gave us the top line figure. I said, oh, that's great. But what are all the other things that have gone into making those happen? So when you're thinking about, from an accountant's perspective, how valuable these accounts are, you also need to think about the totality of the environment. Um, and so when we think about a business, we've got these five different intangible asset classes, artistic, marketing, customer, contract, and technology. And then you have a balancing figure, which is called goodwill. Now, up until about 10, 12 years ago, goodwill is what many people would just call intangible assets. So if you hear someone say goodwill, that's probably what they mean. But what they should be talking about is each of the different intangible assets. So when we're talking about customer relationships, that will be a bundle of intellectual property um, that we're going to need to place a value on and allocate out the difference between the different um, assets that we've got. So over the last 24 years, We've been looking at the value of all stock markets in the world uh, and the value that they have both listed on the stock market and in their accounts. And over that time, it's been fairly consistent between tangible assets and intangible assets. So the tangible assets being the dark blue, being you know plant, machinery, things like that, and the green being the intangible assets. Now, one of the key confusions, and this is probably why we need to have this conversation about how to value a, a customer relationship now, is that if we were to look at, say, Amazon, Amazon's never been acquired, and therefore most of its intangible assets never find its way onto its balance sheet. Uh, if we go back to David's quote that I'm sure all of you remember word for word, it was essentially saying, uh, under IFRS 3, you can't reliably place a value on an intangible asset until it's acquired. Even though you could value it at any point using exactly the same methodology and assumptions and all that sort of stuff, you can't deem it to be reliably done until you've actually acquired that business. And so for someone like Amazon that's never been acquired, the vast majority of their intangible assets 
will never make it onto the balance sheet unless those rules change. Uh, I'm not saying they necessarily should. There are arguments. I mean, I think that there are mechanisms that could be done to enhance knowledge of the value. But there are many reasons why you might say they shouldn't go on the balance sheet because it could encourage creative accounting. Um, and that you know, can be very dangerous if you're allowing executives to do management valuations of assets that then might loop back and help their remuneration later. So there are reasons why they don't allow it. That's why it only is allowed at um, acquisition. But uh, it doesn't mean that you can't do it every day. Now, Whole Foods, on the other hand, was acquired by Apple, uh, Amazon, and therefore all of its intangible assets can go on its balance sheet. And so there's a difference between intangible assets that are homegrown, again, referring back to David's quote, and those that have been acquired. And so um, what I'm gonna show you in a little bit are some examples of homegrown versus acquired intangibles and how that stacks up within a business. And then we can talk about how to think about customer relationships within that sort of preface. Over the years, they have been bringing in various new standards. So us wonderful accountants have been thinking about how to value intangible assets. And so there is a growing understanding um, related to its importance, uh, or not its importance, all of their assets' importance. This is what accountants will generally think about. Um, I won't go into all of them, but largely it's, uh, it's been a, a formalizing process over time. The brand-related things have been particularly to do with transfer pricing and stuff like that. Um, because the tax authorities are generally the ones that drive the need for money. So if we see here, we're now up to about 15 trillion in uh, declared, disclosed intangible assets. These are the ones that are on balance sheets when brands are acquired. But if we look at the overall, this top blue bit, the green bit is the disclosed bit, the top blue bit is the undisclosed. So that's all those homegrown assets that are as yet unvalued. And this includes the vast majority of customer relationships. So you see that there are big fluctuations where things are overvalued and then there's a stock market crash and um, the share price goes down. And so this is the balancing figure between the share price and what's disclosed on, on um, balance sheets. So you can see there's a huge, huge opportunity here for understanding related to customer relationships and other assets. Now, over that time, somebody has been tracking mergers and acquisitions activity. And since 2003, the balance has shifted between brand and customer value. So now when, customer, when, when businesses are acquiring other businesses, they are seeing more value in those customer relationships than they are in the brand. So if we think back to the first slide and think, you know, Apple's got a brand value of 260 billion, well, that's great, but it's also possibly got a huge amount of customer relationships, which we haven't actually put in a table and said, this is what they're worth. Um, but you know, it's becoming much, much more important. So this is what we're left with now, roughly, um, from our analysis of all the stock markets across the world, looking at all the various different undisclosed, homegrown intangible assets. This is how they split out. So the customer segment um, is enormously important and largely misunderstood and uh, not appropriately valued at any given moment. So as part of that study, we looked at the most intangible companies in the world. No surprise, really. This is the value of their intangible assets. Um, uh, we do this study every year. Uh, it is quite interesting. Uh, what you were saying about um, 
valuations and and sort of companies potentially looking uh, more healthy than they actually are. It reminded me of um, the valuation of WeWork and how there was a lot of confusion over sort of what type of company it was. There are a lot of people saying it's a tech company when realistically it wasn't. Um, and it's very easy for people to get whipped up into false sense of understanding related to companies that are highly intangible. So, I mean, in my opinion, something weird's happened to Tesla um, and its fundamentals don't necessarily back up the, the changes to the valuation that it's currently got. But, you know, a lot of people think that it's true and ultimately something is worth as much as someone is willing to pay for it. But I think there needs to be a little bit more understanding related to its intangible assets before I could agree to its current valuation. Anyway, if we split out Microsoft between the tangible assets, which is 7%, and the intangible assets, which is 93%, it's only had a few acquisitions, which is this 2% and 0.04. The remainder of it is undisclosed, which means that it's got vast amounts of brand, technology, intangible, um, customer relationships, and all that sort of stuff the homegrown intangibles. What we have to do when thinking about customer-related assets is to identify what they all are and what we mean by an asset and what we mean by a relationship and all that sort of thing. So we have three broad categories, customer lists, uh, order, you know, contractual uh, agreements, and um, then the relationships uh, and customer contracts as well. So now we have to try and value them once we've identified them. And... Um, it was interesting hearing the chat before. Uh, it was interesting talking to Phil um, just a little bit earlier about how he sees it. Um, and I was trying to explain the way that I, as an accountant, see value of things. Because ultimately, there are many costs that go into facilitating a client relationship in terms of winning it, in terms of um, making sure that it happens as it does. Um, but then also just to make sure that you have the organizational structure to allow your business to exist in the first place to be able to facilitate that customer relationship. So I, as an accountant, would look at those coming off any valuation that I did, rather than saying, okay, well, yes, this, this is a lump sum of, of money that's come into the business and therefore that's its value and it's an odd distinction that you have to make between that between his cash coming into the business but then also if I were to sell that relationship then the person that I'm selling it to would also have to undergo all of those costs related to facilitating it and therefore that's how I would have to think about it as the net between the costs that go into it um, and the costs that I'm getting out of it. So with assets, there are three ways to do it. Cost approach, market approach, income approach. Probably we'd be looking at an income approach when we're talking about customer relationships. And in particular, there's one called a multi-period excess earnings method, uh, which is basically looking at the profit that you get uh, from a company, from um, relationships, and trying to allocate that out across the various different assets. So some of the, if I skip forward to the next slide, the um, multi-period excess earnings method, which hopefully I made an acronym, um, <laughs> it relies on these four steps. So revenue estimation, expected earnings, contributory assets, 
and then the discount rate to get the present value. So all of those different steps are quite fiddly and particular to any given situation. So revenue estimation, how, how do you go about doing that? If I'm potentially buying a, uh, a company or I'm thinking about my customer relationships right now, how am I supposed to work that one out? Well, as a valuer, we are forced to. We have to in those situations. So when, when there is an acquisition, you can say things like, okay, well, you've got 100 customers and over the past 20 years, every year, maybe 10% of them churn away. So that's my assumption. Or you could say over the past 10 years or the past 20, 50 years, the average lifespan of a relationship is five years. And therefore, I'm going to say that all of the ones you've currently got, depending on how old they are, they have an average of up to five years left. And so you have to try and think about these things when you're thinking about what the, the value of the asset is it's, uh, and the, the revenue estimation. And that's why Phil's IRR sort of estimations are brilliant at allowing a valuer to try and think, okay, well, that one's less risky. That one's possibly going to stay for longer. You know, that one might renew a little bit better. And it adds that certainty. Some of the valuations that I've done have just been, you ask management what's going on, they have no idea at all. They couldn't possibly tell you, which is enormously unhelpful um, when you have to try and come up with something to please uh, ultimately the, the purchasers and the auditor. So revenue estimation, I mean, I, I, there's not much more I can say than other, other than in a specific business case, but largely what you're doing is looking at a large array of different customer relationships. Some of the key accounts uh, you might have to look at um, in terms of a sort of almost like a Schrodinger's client situation where further into the future you have to both surmise that it's existing and then hypothetically not existing at the same time um, to try and work out what you think the expected value is of those revenues. Then you get your earnings uh, and apply your taxes and all that sort of stuff, but you have to look at the overall profitability of the business because ultimately you can't facilitate an account if you don't have a business that you're related to. So if you think these are all the things that the accountant's thinking of when they're looking at the value of a client. And I, the example that I gave to Phil was um, we've got, as brand finance, we've got some clients um, that we know to be very profitable and we know that they are uh, you know, great clients, but we couldn't have them if we didn't do this big promotional activity that we do each year in releasing those values of brands. So is, is the, the, the account valuable or do I have to deduct all of the overheads related to the promotional activity that I do in relation to it to say that it's going to be the net between that uh, account and the promotional activities? Or do I just say the promotional activity is a big liability? Forget about that. Um, the account is really valuable. But if I were to try and sell the account to someone else and they didn't have this liability, they wouldn't be able to service it. So that doesn't work. I can't, can't necessarily do it that way. Uh, and so you would have to think about these things in terms of profitability of the various different items. And that comes down to contributory asset charges. And contributory asset charges could be all these you know, other activities that you do. It could be things like workforce as well. That's one of the things that we need to take off. It could be physical assets. Um, to ultimately get down to what you think the net cash flow is as a result of having this client. And there are so many different moving parts that you could argue at any given time that that is 
one of the reasons why it makes it difficult to do it on an ongoing basis, but it certainly is something that can be done once a year more frequently than there is an acquisition. So the, the other thing that I wanted to mention regarding, capitaliz- uh, regarding contribu- uh, contributory asset charges is this book called Capitalism Without Capital, which I don't know if anyone's read, but uh, it talks about the rise of intangible assets and how it's very difficult to unpick the differences between them and where um, so one, one ends and the other begins. Because ultimately, client relationships is brand building. You know, it, it, it is one and the same. Every client interaction that you have is also going and contributing towards the brand. So how do you unpick the two? I mean, obviously, the client relationship is what keeps people in. Or is it? I mean, is the brand helping people stay loyal? Is it, is it helping them say, oh, yeah, well, I can trust that, you know, it's a good company. And if there is damage to the brand, would that cause a rift in the client relationship as well? So synergies um, is one of the four S's out of capitalism without capital. And just the gen- general thought con- constructs in there are, are very useful when trying to have conversations with people uh, about the use of intangible assets and the thought process and the value behind them. So uh, we did evaluation of Accenture. This is their enterprise value. This is just illustrative to show how valuable intangible assets are and particularly contracts. Accenture, uh, enterprise value as listed on the stock exchange, it was 179 billion at the time of me taking this. Um, 86% of that was intangible assets. 14% of it was tangible assets. Um, And only 6% of the entire value, so only 20% of the entire value of um, Accenture can be explained by what is reported in its balance sheets. So again, it has 80% that is unexplained. So we did some valuations. We did our brand valuation, which was 15%, but then I chucked all these in because it was easier. We did technology, goodwill, and contractual and customer Um, And the contractual and customer came out at vastly the largest portion of value within Accenture. Uh, If I I were to split them out between contractual and customer, the customer is about 38%. 38% of total value within the organization was related to those customer relationships that they have. And so even though, you know, brand value, some people scoff at and they say, oh, it's ridiculous, it's so high. You know, there is enormous intangible value, both in the customer relationship and the contracts within these businesses as well. And that's why it's very important to try at least to understand how to value these things, but also how to split out the value between the various different assets that you have. And so when you're talking to an accountant, you need to think that they're probably going to be thinking like me and taking out all the cost lines as well and not just the lump sum figure at the end of it. Although they may be in the mindset to just say, we need to cover our overheads. So great, that is really valuable to us. So we can just take the lump sum of it, but I won't get into that one. So uh, I thought it was very, very important to um, end, uh, end on a quote. Um, customer relationships, as I've just been discussing, are incredibly important and they hold a lot of value. Um, and trying to value them in some way and going about it in a methodical way with good information is the only way of doing it. And so you need to get as much information as you can so that when you get someone like me to come along, I'm going to be able to make an informed, understood choice about valuing that company and those assets um, with some of the assumptions that I've been talking about today. Um, So I think I'm 10 minutes over time, but uh, if there are any questions, uh, please ask them now.
only a center valuation. So it, it, it's you're taking the market cap as your enterprise, enterprise value. Enterprise. So, yeah, market cap plus debt. Plus debt. However, they are not. If they were to be sold, then the intangible could be much larger. It could be, yeah, but um, we run on the assumption that the market is pricing it appropriately. So uh, because it's a listed company, we're, we're assuming, rightly or wrongly, that the market has, has priced it at what it's worth. But hypothetically, yeah, you do see it sometimes. Um, things like Cadbury's, there was a big spike when that was threatening to be acquired because people started saying, oh, no, no, you've forgotten about all the intangible assets. And the intangible assets were being forgotten about. Um, because of people ignoring the different brands. In fact, fun fact, uh, in the history of brand valuation, the reason it started was back in 1987 as a uh, riposte to someone trying to um, acquire uh, Hovis, and they weren't taking care of all the brands. So, you know, as a counter to that, they did a valuation of the brands and said, no, it's much more valuable than you realise. That it, So it is possible, but um, we assume that it is correctly priced. Have you, have you got a number for the industry? You know, so 43% customer, you know, how do we know whether it's good or bad unless we are able to compare it with, let's say, either the industry or the competitors? Uh, well, it's an interesting definition to say, is it good or bad? Um, because I suppose you know, they're all working in harmony you wouldn't want a company where 100% of the value is in the customer relationship because it probably wouldn't be working very well if none of the other assets were contributing any value. So I suppose it kind of depends on what you want to define good as. Simple, right? So for example, if Accenture is at 43%, and if I do the same thing for IBM, and that's at 60%, I know that uh, maybe IBM is giving you know, much more preference to their customers, and, you know, whereas Accenture is you know, not. Possibly, but Accenture could be you know, creating value through its technological IP that IBM awesome. arguably isn't, yeah. maybe. Yeah. The moment you have the whole range, you, you start to see which company is focused on which intangible to sort of, you know, bring their value on. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, someone like uh, Beats or Apple will have large brand proportions because they just trick people into thinking they've got good products. So. <laughs> So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, we've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do, from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, it will only take a few minutes to complete, and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself.